Well, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, as we begin a new short teaching series of selected passages on the gospel more broadly and the ascension of Christ more specifically. What is the gospel? This is the introductory message to this series. It's the very first message I ever gave to this church. I've mentioned that a handful of times. What is the gospel? I think as a church, if we're going to center our lives around the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will never be too often for us to stop and pause and try our best to make sure we know what it is. It is the center, it is the foundation, it is the A to Z. It is not just the diving board we jump off into the swimming pool of the Christian faith. It is the waters we swim in every day. What is the gospel? One of the main emphases of this sermon series is to try and help, by contrast, you see some of the ways the gospel is often presented. So, for example, one of the most common over the last 50 years that the gospel, ways that the gospel has been presented is by Bill Bright's The Four Spiritual Laws. If you've never heard them, here they are in very short summary fashion. Number one, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Law number one, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Number two, humanity is sinful and is separated from God. Therefore, we humans cannot know and experience this love and plan of God. Number three, Jesus Christ is God's one and only provision for the sin of man, and through him you can know and experience the love of God and his wonderful plan for your life. And fourth and finally, we must each individually receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, and then we can know and experience the love of God and his wonderful plan for our life. Is that the gospel? I would like to begin by saying that I have, I don't think any objections to those four spiritual laws. I'm not going to tell you that those four things that I just said are untrue, or that the Bible doesn't teach them. But if that's your best summary of the gospel, then I think we have some work to do. Or, to put it another way, at Embassy Church, I don't want just summaries of the gospel or a little bit of the gospel. If this is the swimming pool that we swim in, then I'm hoping and praying that we have a robust, full, complete understanding of the gospel and not just a few little truths here or there. And so there's a lot of things that I would want to critique and kind of fill in, and there's some gaps missing in the four spiritual laws. But my plan today is to explain that at the end of the sermon after, hopefully, I have faithfully presented the message of the gospel, the mission of the gospel, and the ministry of the gospel. I think the gospel is like a bullseye. You know that Target logo, like the store Target? It's got three layers. There's the, the bullseye in the, in the middle, the red center. That's the, the message of the gospel. But then the same Target, closely connected to that, is the mission of the gospel. And then on the outside, but connected, not the message and not the mission, but the ministry of the gospel is what we're going to focus on today. So I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to just briefly point out 
in the passage where I'm getting those three ideas from, and then we're going to work through them in today's sermon. So the message, the mission, and the ministry. I'm going to start in verse 14. And when I start in verse 14, this section is a transition section to what just happened in chapter 2. Jesus ascended to heaven. Hallelujah. He lifted up. He has left. It's paradoxical, isn't it? You want Jesus to stay. You want him to return. He's gone. That would make us normally think that would be a bad thing. That's a sad thing. But as we see in Acts chapter 1, him leaving was part of the plan. It's good so that then the Spirit can come. And that's what happened in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit then came. And now a bunch of people are understanding the gospel message, even though they come from different areas and and tribes. and, And they're all Jewish people, but they're from different tongues, different ethnes. Or, or, or regions, but they're all understanding the message of the gospel, and some people think this is, this is drunkenness. There's, there's like a wild religious cultic party going on. This is strange, and so Peter stands up, and he's like, let me set the record straight. That's what's happened, and in verse 14, we're going to get a transition where he's saying this is just exactly what the prophets said was going to happen, so here's the bridge, and then I'll explain the message, the mission, the ministry. 14. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. This is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. And in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Pause. So that's the bridge. He's explaining from Joel, this is not drunkenness, this is not craziness, this is exactly what God said would happen in his word. Now, the message. So from here on out, this is the section of the text that I think we get the message of the gospel. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works, And wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me with full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, 
nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Pause. I think at this point he's winding down and he is concluding his sermon. The message is coming to an end, the very next line, and then here in verse 36 all the way to verse 41, I think we get the the mission. The message, here's the mission, starting in verse 36. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness, and he continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Pause, last but not least, the ministry. There's a, mis- there's a message that has a mission, and all of that is encompassed in this target vision, this last final ring, the ministry. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the needs to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The end for now. In terms of Acts chapter 2, we'll pause there and we'll now go back through these three concepts. There is a message, there is a mission, and there is a ministry. So what is the gospel? I said it's like a target and there is a more narrow technical definition for the gospel. And it is not at all appeared in the four spiritual laws. This technical definition of the gospel that we find in both Old and New Testaments was not summarized by the four spiritual laws. The center, the bullseye, is a gospel that must be proclaimed, a message. So we're going to first look at that. The gospel is a message, and there's a technical definition of this message, and there's a more narrow sense to gospel. And we should proclaim that message. That's number one. Number two, the gospel requires for us to take the mission of the gospel and persuade people. There's a mission. There's a requirement, a, a, a necessary required implication that if the gospel is a message, well, then there's a mission to persuade people after we have proclaimed that gospel. Third and finally, the gospel results in, it has a result. So there's a revelation from God that has a response from the people who hear it that then results in a gospel 
participation, a ministry that we must participate in, and they're all interconnected. So let's work through these one at a time. Hopefully you'll remember that there's a message, a technical definition of the gospel that's connected to a mission that participates us in a ministry. Here we go. Number one, the gospel is a message and it's something that must be proclaimed. The technical narrow sense of the gospel is news. That's what the word means and it is used in a specific sense like 90 some percent of the time both in the Bible and outside of the Bible to talk about something that is announced, something that is shouted from the rooftops. If you've ever heard that the gospel is good news, that is actually the definition of the word gospel, good news. And I want you all to do something with me. Turn your Bibles. You can keep them finger or some sort of book, note, whatever, in Acts 2. But I need us to look at Isaiah. This is the only time I'm going to ask you to turn your Bible. But I need you to see Isaiah 52, verse 7. And it's this passage in Isaiah that I think provides one of the most helpful background definitions and understandings of gospel. And if we can understand that this was the concept before the New Testament even came into being, that there was a technical kind of understanding of the word gospel, then I think we're going to be helped to better understand Acts 2 and especially the question, what is the gospel? So here's Isaiah. 52 verse 7. We're just going to look at this one verse. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is Hebrew poetry and Hebrew poetry uses parallelism to say something and then say the exact same thing again but another way. So look at the passage again. There is somebody that has beautiful feet and they're on a mountain. Then notice that this person has beautiful feet because they bring good news. So beautiful feet on a mountain is a messenger bringing, and then that's our word, gospel. Hebrew word is basar. The Greek word is euangelion. And that's the word we're talking about, the technical word we're trying to define. What is a gospel? It's good news. The bearer or bringer of news. Notice that is now paralleled with the same person who has beautiful feet, brings good news, publishes peace. So now we have a different word that's saying there's some kind of publishing of shalom, which is the idea of wholeness, fullness, restoration of that which was broken. That's what shalom means in a short summary definition. Then notice it's paralleled again. The one who brings good news of happiness, or sometimes it's translated glad tidings. So this is good news that brings peace and happiness. And then lastly, notice, publishes salvation. So what is salvation? It's the same thing as good news. It's the same thing as publishing peace. It's the same thing as some message of happiness. But there's one more. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. So we've looked at all these parallels, but the one thing that I think we should get is that it is a message, it is news, it is happy news that brings about wholeness and fullness of life in a kingdom, and it is when God, Yahweh, reigns. So if you were to summarize it, not with four spiritual laws, but the shortest possible summary of the technical, narrow sense of the gospel, the bullseye of the gospel, you could summarize it very well by God reigning. God reigns on the earth. 
The God of heaven, the one who created everything, he is reigning on the earth. That's the gospel. That's what the gospel means. That's what the word means, and that's how it was used. And it was used that way not only in the Old Testament, it was used that way in culture. When Caesar was dead and a new Caesar took his place, they would send out messengers all over the place, and they would start shouting and proclaiming, Heary, heary, everybody in all of the towns in this region. There is a, and then they would say, a gospel. There is an announcement. And this announcement is about a new king that is on the throne. That would be one context. Another context would be if there was a battle and there was a change of power or a victory that was won. Those are the two dominant contexts for the word euangelion or basar in Hebrew. And that's our word, gospel. And so in this sense, I want us to see the more technical definition is gospel. Say to Zion, Zion's the name for the city of Jerusalem, because the mountain that the city was built on was Zion. So when you read that phrase, say to the people who are citizens in Jerusalem, your God, he is reigning. So that was a lot of explanation. Let's just picture it this way, okay? Pause, mental moment for you to just, what are you trying to say, Pastor Phil? I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine it's 3,000 years ago and you and your family Whoever your friends and family circles are, imagine you living outside of Jerusalem in a small town. You have no freedom, you have no rights, you barely have enough food to live and survive. All the money or food that you normally would get for yourself is being taken from you. There's an oppressive regime. Your wife, your daughters, your family, they're being abused regularly by these men dressed up in these military uniforms, working and and representing this oppressive regime that is over your land. There is no shalom. There is no peace. You are not happy. And there is nothing worth celebrating. But then one day, a messenger comes, running through the valleys and up to the hills, over to your village, and he starts shouting, Everybody! A great battle has occurred. The present ruler has been defeated and overthrown, and in his place is a king, a king who has been well known for being generous and fair and just and right. His kingdom will bring shalom and peace and happiness. And instead of taxing and taking away from you and abusing, he will bless and give and share the spoils of his victory because he loves his people. That is gospel. In the days of the Bible, not just in the Bible itself, Isaiah 52, or the New Testament when they use the word, but outside in the Roman Empire, that's the word. That's the picture you're supposed to have when it says the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to forever remember that scene. That's gospel. That's the technical meaning of it, and it's about the reign of a king, a battle being won, a kingdom has been defeated, and a new king is now in his place. And this is what the authors of the Bible are doing when they say, we have a gospel message. The Lord God reigns in Jerusalem. Pharaoh doesn't reign, Yahweh reigns. The king of Babylon doesn't reign, the God of Israel is now in charge. The Caesar and the Roman emperor does not have say. It is Jesus who means Yahweh saves. He is now on the ultimate throne. That's the gospel. The shortest possible summary is Jesus is king. He reigns. You guys get it? That's the gospel. This is the good news. This is the message. I'm just summarizing the message. 
But we don't want just the shortest possible technical definition, do we? I've already said we want a robust, complete, full understanding of this gospel, the Jesus one, right? Back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the message. That's what we're on right now. We're just trying to understand what is the message. And we know that if we're to summarize it with not four spiritual laws, but one simple little phrase, it's Jesus is king. He reigns in heaven. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He's the one that we submit to and we obey. He reigns, he rules, but there's more to it, right? That's just the summary, but what about, I want to know. Come on, give me some meat, Pastor Phil. I hope that's what you're thinking, all right? So here we go, the message. We're in Acts chapter 2, and this is the thing that happened to me three years ago, and this is why I've spent the last three years working on more schooling and paying a bunch of money to a school to get a dissertation, and that you all can now make fun of me and call me Dr. Phil. And that, and that'd be cute, yeah. So for the last three years, I have been working on studying the ascension of Jesus as he reigns and rules in the heavens, and a lot of it's been based off of this, this little concept that got me. I started thinking about all that happened in the life of Jesus, and I was having some conversations actually with some embassy members, and I remember the first time it happened. I was at breakfast, I was with a church member, and I was like, what do you think are the five most important things that Jesus did? And I started thinking about that. And I started asking that church member, and some of you might even have had this conversation with me, because then I started asking everybody. I was like obsessed with this. I was like, what, let's just summarize. What did Jesus do? And let's summarize it into five things. And this is what I ended up getting. Almost everybody said that Jesus came to the earth, like he was born. That was kind of important, that God became man. Then that Jesus died on a cross. Thankfully, every single one of you at Embassy Church said Jesus died on the cross is really important. And thankfully, everybody at Embassy said that Jesus rose again from the dead. And I, have must, I'm, I must have asked at least, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 people before finally somebody said Jesus ascended at the right hand. And it wasn't even a member of this church. Uh-oh, Embassy. That's what this sermon series is about. I want you to know the five things that Jesus did. I want you to know not just a little short summary of the gospel. I want you to know the full weight of it. And I started to think, I don't know if you realize this, but Christmas, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. I think that's the reason why everybody had those three. After that, it was just like his baptism, the transfiguration, his miracles, his teaching. And nobody said his ascension to heaven. And at that time, honestly, before this started to dawn on me, I don't think I would have either. And I'm your pastor. Like, I was a pastor at that time. I'm not talking like before I was a Christian. So this is, this is what has driven me for the last three years to try and figure out what is the meaning and the significance of Christ's reign and rule. And so here we go. I now have not five things, but seven. But, but watch. One of the problems I have with the four spiritual laws summary, as... I'll explain, is that the Trinity's not there. There's no God the Father, there's no God the Son, and there's no spirit mentioned anywhere in the four spiritual laws. I have a big problem with that as a theologian or pastor. So I'm going to give you, and this is, this is robust, we're not looking for just short and sweet now, we're looking for the robust summary of the gospel. And if you don't have something to take notes, praise God we're recording this right now and hopefully you can get these down. Seven things that had to have happened to accomplish the gospel. Here they are in seven. I'm going to go through them again, but here they are just so you can hear all of them at once. Number one, God the Father made a plan. Number two, Jesus of Nazareth became a man. Number three, Jesus the Messiah was crucified. 
Number four, Jesus was buried and descended to the dead, or what you see in this text, the Hades. Number five, Jesus was raised from the dead, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Number six, Jesus was exalted to the Father's right hand. This is the ascension of Christ to the Father's right hand. He is now Lord and Christ. And number seven, the Holy Spirit was poured out as Jesus received from the Father his reward. He then shares the bounty of his victory to his people and generously pours out his spirit. So let me show that in Acts chapter 2, the very first sermon, all of these seven things are included. And so in another ways, and this this is hopefully going to come full circle. Some of you might already know where these seven things came from. I didn't make them up. Christians for a long time have been summarizing the gospel with these seven things. And I'm hoping that you will memorize them when we finally get to that conclusion. So that's a, that's a little like a little seed I'm, I'm trying to plant. Where are these seven things nicely and neatly summarized for thousands of years that Christians have been using to summarize the gospel? Okay. Well, I think they're right here in Acts 2. And so let's just show that each of these things are essential, necessary links on a chain. So to illustrate this, before we just quickly dive into each of these seven things, I want you to see each of those seven things I think are essential and necessary to the gospel. And like a chain that's linked together, if you take one of them out, you make the gospel weaker. You might even lose the gospel. So I want to think of it like this. Heaven and earth... They're meant to be together. God and man are to dwell together, but because of the separation that happened, there is a series of chain links that are going to link us back together, and then at the end of all time, that chain is going to bring heaven and earth together. That's the image I want you to have in your mind about these seven things. Each of them, essential, necessary links. Don't, your weakest link, I'm saying it's, It's got to be one of these points, ascension or even the descent to the dead, both of those points. We're not good at. So here we go. I'm going to show you from the text that this is where I'm getting this idea. Number one, God the Father made a plan. Look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. And that reference to of God, I can't go into all of the reasons, but I would argue is the Father. God the Father made a plan And that plan was the gospel. So we're going to begin with the Father, Trinitarian explanation of the message of the gospel. And we see that quite clearly in verse 23, okay? Number two, Jesus of Nazareth. That means he is a man. It's emphasizing his humanity, not Jesus, son of God, but Jesus, the man of Nazareth. Notice the way verse 22 says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus who is born and raised up in Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this is the public nature of Jesus's life and his birth. So in this case, when we're thinking about God the Father made a plan, second, Jesus became a man. In order for God's plan to work, Jesus had to be sent to the earth and become a human, fully God, fully man. That's point two. God the Father made a plan, Jesus was born through the virgin. It's not explicitly made here, but the point being that he was a full man, full God, a man of mighty works by the power of God. Number three, 
Jesus was crucified and killed. We, we've got to talk about the death of Jesus. And as I said, thankfully, no one at our church missed this. This Jesus, verse 23, was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. So, the death of Jesus, we've just spent several weeks in the Matthew Sermon series talking about the significance of the death of Jesus. I'm not going to say more here, but we need to include it. It's a link. It's essential. It's maybe right at the crux in many ways of, of what's happening, where all of, of Jesus' life has a turning point on that cross. And then as if it then turns once we see uh, the next few steps. So I think a lot of things are coming to culmination with the, the death of Jesus. Number four, though. Jesus was buried, and he descended into the dead. So we know in verse 23 that Peter stands up and he says, look, you guys killed Jesus. This was part of God's plan, but you, you killed him. And then, verse 24, God raised him up by loosing the pangs of death. So now we're talking about how he is being, he's conquering death. And then it says, it was not possible for him to be held by death. He would not remain in the grave. That was last Sunday, Easter Sunday, right? But here he emphasizes that Jesus was buried and that he was in the place of the dead, Sheol or Hades, however it might be translated. And so he does this by quoting Psalm 16. So when you see that David says this, he's quoting a psalm, Psalm 16, because, as just a little side note, good gospel sermons use the Bible, okay? If, if you're trying to preach the gospel and the Holy Spirit just came down, you do that by turning to the Bible. And that's what Peter does. He's preaching the Bible as he does this sermon. And here's his second text. He already preached Joel 2. Now he's in Psalm 16. And then notice that the psalm says in verse 27, this is the key phrase, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And he picks that up and says, look, look at verse 29. David died. We know that he's dead. He did not conquer death. So do you get the logic? He's saying, if David was writing about his life, well, God, you aren't going to let my soul see corruption or my body be corrupted in the grave. I'm going to conquer death. And then Peter's conclusion is, I don't know, he, he's kind of still dead. We can go to his tomb right now. So clearly, David was not the one that this psalm is ultimately about. There had to have been a future one that he was talking about, and that's his point in verse 30. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, the Christ. And he was not then abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So I think this is the important fact that Jesus died and then he was buried. And during that day, that holy Saturday, he was in the grave and his soul was in Hades, or Sheol. There's a lot we could talk about that. We don't have time to do that today. But I would say that the best way to argue it is that he went to the place of the righteous dead, also called Abraham's bosom. And they hold a whole theology and concept in Jewish teaching about the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead. And so he went to that place. And this is why he says to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. Or again, Abraham's side, the bosom of, of um, yes, Abraham's side or bosom, the, the paradise place when somebody dies. And so therefore, Hades had these two different compartments. Jesus was righteous, therefore he went there. 
Christians debate this and discuss this. Some of you may disagree, but that's where I'm landing on that point. So we've covered that the Father makes a plan. Jesus was born and became a man. Three, Jesus was crucified and killed. And clearly, number four, Jesus was buried into the ground and he descended to the dead, the place of the dead. He stayed dead for a little while. That's another way to just make it simple. Number five, Jesus was raised. Notice that this was the whole point of him saying he, he was raised in verse 24. God raised him up, showing that he conquered death. You see this again in verse 33, being therefore exalted, or, or even right before that, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up and we're all witnesses of the resurrection, being therefore exalted. So we should see that there is a continual descent. God sent Jesus down. He then lived on the earth. He was baptized. He then died. He was then buried. And then he was raised. And so it's got this like V-shaped pattern of from heaven down to the very depths of the earth in the burial ground. Then he's raised up all the way to the heavens. That's point six. Jesus was exalted to the Father's right hand, the ascension of Christ. We see that in verse 33, exalted to the Father's right hand, receiving from the Father the promise of the Spirit, pouring out the Spirit. And then notice he preaches the Bible again. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Where is he preaching now? The Psalms again. Psalm 110, verse 1. Fun fact. Ready, guys? Time to wake up. Here's a little quiz trivia when you're hanging out with your other Christian friends. What verse in the New Testament is quoted most often by the authors of the New Testament? Like the Old Testament passage that they seem to talk about the most when talking about Jesus. You just read it. Psalm 110, verse 1. I've counted at least 23 different references, either direct quotes or allusions to this verse. Every single author does it. Even Jesus himself uses this verse. It is like, if you want to understand who Jesus is, it's the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make enemies a footstool at your feet. I don't know about you, but I kind of think maybe that's important. Maybe that's something that we should emphasize. Maybe the kingdom reign of Jesus to the right hand of the Father is actually the climax of the gospel. Huh, go figure. But you won't find that in the four spiritual laws or a lot of other people's summaries of the gospel, including your very own pastors before he got smacked on the head by what I'm now presenting to you. So, seventh and finally, we have seen that the Holy Spirit is being poured out. That was verse 33. When he ascended to the heavens, this meant the descent of the Spirit being poured out, which you are all now seeing. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 2. So, there you got your seven robust, full, complete summary of the message. This is the bullseye. What is the gospel? There it is. That's the message of the gospel. Starts with the Father and his plan. Then there's five things that Jesus did. He was born, lived a human life. He died and suffered a death on a cross. He then was buried and descended to the dead. He then was raised from the dead, resurrection from the dead, and then he ascended as the Lord who will judge all. That's the five things that I think you should have right there in your hip pocket next time I quiz you. What are the top five things that Jesus did? There they are. And then that leads to the seventh thing, which is the outpouring of the Spirit. All right, that was all point one. You guys warmed up. Point two. The gospel requires a mission to persuade. 
That's just the message. That's just the facts. That's just the content. So what do you do with that? What do you do with news? You don't just share news. You get people to believe the news. You persuade. So this is why verse 36, Peter says, now everybody, I need you to know this for certain. Do you see that language? He's trying to convince them of the truth of the reality of what he just preached. And then notice the response. People hear this and some people are going to have their hearts, hearts hardened and some people have their hearts cut and softened. And some of these people had their hearts cut and softened. And so they go up to Peter and they say, I think we're supposed to do something. What should we do? And Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What I love about Acts 2 is that it rightly proclaims this theme about resurrection and ascension and king your God reigns Jesus but it's not as if it's like disconnected from this whole concept of forgiveness of sins and that it's because of sin that Jesus is on the cross and it's all here in Acts 2. Then we notice in verse 40 notice that it says with many other words Peter is bearing witness and continuing to exhort. This message demands, because this is what you do with the gospel, it demands exhorting and convincing and helping people say, I need you to know this for certain, I need you to believe this. And then he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. He's pleading with them. And it says then that many people then received the word because there is a response, there is a demand of a message like this, you must respond to it. You have to. You're going to do one kind of response, one way or another. And the gospel demands a response. It's part of the bigger target of the gospel. It is not the message itself in the technical sense. The response is more of what happens once you hear it. And it's going to do something to the hearers. So we're shifting a little bit, but hope you see how closely tied these two concepts are. So then, I want you to imagine this. Go back to our story. You're living in a small town. You're outside of Jerusalem 3,000 years ago. You have no freedom. You have barely enough food to survive, etc., etc., right? One day a messenger comes running into your village and he's shouting and announcing, a great battle has won. And the present ruler has been defeated and overthrown and there is a new king and he's a great king. You don't hear that news like, hey guys, down in Schaumburg, they're opening up in a new uh, restaurant. I got some news for you. If you shrug your shoulders and go, oh, that's good for you. I don't like that kind of food. That's what I've in the past called soft news. That's what we think of as news. That's newsworthy sometimes. News that you can take it or leave it. This kind of news, it demands a response. So you need to respond. If you're that person in that village, you're either going to believe the messenger and start living differently and repent believe both of those concepts put together attached to baptism says switch allegiances have your allegiance to the new king on the throne align the rest of your life and community according with this king it's not then if you do a bunch of good works then you'll be saved it's he saved it's done there's nothing more for you to do so now live as if he saved that's the gospel. That's why it's good news. If it was good advice, the messenger would come and say, guys, guess what? 
There was a big battle. It's not over. And there's a bunch of armies and soldiers and people that are there. They're going to come. You better, get, you better get working or running or do something. That's a different kind of message. That's what we call good advice. But news means there's nothing left for you to do except live as if this is true. And that's what we're talking about. And so I want you to imagine you're 3,000 years ago and you now have the greatest joy and relief that you've never known. You should celebrate like you've never celebrated before. You now have hope. You now have happiness and you have peace that you could never dream of. And then someone in your family or friend circles who's rather jaded and cynical, they say, yeah, I've heard this kind of thing before. I don't believe it. What do you do then? You persuade Everything within you knows that it's true and it's right and you are trying as best as you can with love, convincing them, believe. Or there might be some that are living with fear and anxiety saying, yeah, I don't know if that really happened. I don't believe the messenger. And they now have fear and anxiety of the next raid of soldiers that have come through town and take their women and take all their money and tax them. And then there's, there's going to be those people that are in the community, and then they're going to say, I kind of liked the old king. I was the tax collector. I was benefiting off of his unjust rules and ways. This new king, he's, he's not going to like that. When he comes to town, and he, sh- he comes strolling in, he, he's not going to like me doing all these unjust, unethical practices. I don't think I like this news. And maybe the more that you talk about this good news and the more that you believe it, the more that it makes those kind of people angry and upset with you. So what are you going to do? That's the world we live in. Some people are angry that there's news like this. They don't like it. They don't want to repent. They liked the old regime. It benefited them quite nicely. They liked things just the way they were. Then there's going to be people that are too, they're they're afraid. They're anxious all the time. They're worried. I'm not doing enough. I need to do more. I I need to get myself ready for the king so that way I can have something to present him. No, he's going to present you with gifts. He's going to pour out his love. You don't know what kind of king he is. Do Do you see how this plays itself out? If you understand the gospel, then you'll rightly respond. And here we have in our community, both within the church and outside the church, people that are kind of in these various places. And our job is to take up the mission to persuade this is the gospel. This is the right gospel. Third, and finally, last point, the gospel results in a ministry to participate. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to the prayers, and all came upon every soul. This is verse 33 and following. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The gospel, on that final third ring, the gospel results in a ministry of the local church that we must participate in. We must devote ourselves to teaching, to the fellowship, the sharing of everything that we have, devoting ourselves to celebrating regularly. Let's remember every single week, if not every day, there's a victory. It's been won. The king is coming. He's on his way. He's not here yet, but we need to live as if he did. And if he is coming, 
So let's devote ourselves to teaching, to fellowship, to celebrating, breaking bread together and reminding ourselves, yes, victory has been won. This is a day of rejoicing even in the midst of our sorrows and even in the midst of the persecution. Let's hold on to our faith. Let's pray together. Let's praise God for what he's doing and let's see people get saved because the second point, there's a mission. And day by day, those who are being saved into the church. Number one, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's true. I mean, I don't think that's heresy. God, though, as I've tried to explain it, has a plan not just for you, you know? Like, we're just starting off with, like, you and your happiness. No wonder the prosperity gospel has flourished inside and outside of the church. We keep talking about your wonderful life. Well, what... What's the average person going to put in their head when they hear that? Well, a wonderful life means I'm going to get rich and be successful and be healthy. So what if we didn't start with God has a wonderful plan for you? What if we started with God has a wonderful plan for salvation that is centered around Jesus? Does that seem like a little different? Not like the one thing was completely false, but man, there's some holes there. Second. Humanity is sinful and separated from God. Therefore, humans, we can't know and experience this love from God and the plan for our life. Again, true. I don't have a problem necessarily with the truth of this statement. Humanity has sinned. But I think we should see this sin as a rebellion against the king and this separation from God as the correct and necessary separation of he is going to reign and rule his way and his good and righteous ways. And humans, when they want to assert their pride, arrogance, and say, we can do better than God, he's too loving to let that happen. And humans, we don't like to submit to the reign and rule of God. We don't want anybody telling us what to do, not even God. And in this way, I think it helps us better understand the reality of sin. It's a necessary consequence of a good God, not just this, he's angry that you broke his rules, he's going to get you. Number three, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. I completely agree. Hallelujah. Amen. Through him, you can know and experience God's love and his plan for your life. Also true. Also good. But man, we're missing a lot, aren't we? We don't even mention the cross. We don't mention the ascension. We don't mention his descent to the dead, his being judge. There's a lot of things about Jesus that are not in that statement. Jesus was a man sent by God, died in our place for sinners, was buried into the grave. He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is the judge over all of creation. Jesus is the king at the Father's right hand who blesses everyone with the Holy Spirit, something that's completely left out of four spiritual laws. Everyone, everywhere, must repent and believe and give their allegiance to this king. They will either now, because of choice, or because of just ultimate reality, when every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord over all. Fourth, we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and then we can know and experience the love of God and his wonderful plan for our lives. It begins and it ends and it repeatedly emphasizes you and your wonderful plan. Yes, we must each individually repent and believe. I don't think that that's false. It's not a false statement. But man, 
We must not only receive the message of Jesus as Lord, but we must receive the Spirit, and we must collectively participate in the ministry of the church and persuade others as we go about our mission. And in that way, I think Acts chapter 2, as dense as that might have just been as a sermon, not only this one, but Peter's, I think that's a much better, more robust summary. I mean, there's so much more that could be said. And the point of today's sermon is to say, hopefully it makes sense why I think the ascension of Jesus Christ is not just an optional doctrine, but an essential link to the whole gospel, if not one of the most climactic moments in this journey of Jesus down to the depths of the earth ascended. Don't stop at him rising from the dead. He didn't just stop there. He kept going. And that is why we have church. It's why you have life. It's why you have been born again, because the Spirit's been poured out. And so what we want to do for the next several weeks is continue meditating on at least these links of his descent and his ascent and why that is an important thing for us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your plan. We are thankful that Jesus, your son, has executed that plan faithfully. And we are thankful for the gift of the Spirit that gives us the ability to call Jesus Christ Lord. None of us today are Christians because of something that we have done. We are Christians today because of what you have done through your son Jesus and what you've done through the Spirit to open our eyes to the blindness of our sin and help us see the solution for that sin on the cross. So we want to thank you. We want to, we want to be the kind of people that hear the message of the gospel. And we're not doubting and disbelieving and questioning or even getting angry. We want to be the kind of people that rejoice regularly, even in the midst of our struggles and our persecutions and our sorrows. Be the kind of people that we know the king is on his throne and we know that he is bringing his kingdom to bear on this earth fully and finally. Thank you for what you've already done. I pray that it would give us just rich, deep confidence in the future of what you will do. Help us to believe the gospel Repent and, and put aside all other allegiances to all other kings and idols and religions. And let us believe in Christ as Lord, Lord over all, as Messiah, as the one who came and died in our place. We pray all of this for the glory of his name. Amen.